0: is looking at you, kid. I'm Charles
1: Foster King! Hey, Stella!
2: Suck on this.
1: What is going on, everybody? This is Wrongwell, episode 457. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles, and we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And Today, we're going to be tackling the world of punk, a topic that I know nothing about, but luckily we've got the great Eric Bartlam here to tell us all about it. But Eric, welcome back to Raw Real, but it, this reminds me a little bit of how we first started interacting way back when, was when you were uh, impugning my uh, my taste in music, and so finally we're giving you a platform to talk about your taste in music, so welcome back to the show.
0: Well, thank you, and I, I didn't, I, I, I really was, you know, kind of poking around there, Um I try not to hassle people about what they, uh, you know, what they listen to. But that particular, it's when you have people today or people who are maybe ten years younger or even twenty years younger that want to know where the Beatles are. And I think that's probably where the gist of that conversation started. But I was playing around. I, I you know,
1: I'm glad you did. If, if you hadn't given me some shit about my taste in music, we never would have started talking.
0: <laughs> All, well, all's,
1: I, all's well that ends well.
0: And I'm glad to be talking with you today. I appreciate you having me back, man. I mean, this is we've done this a couple times now, and I really
1: enjoy it. Yeah, we tackled Godard. We tackled Daisies. Did we tackle anything else? I can't remember. We did. The Loveless. Oh, that's right. The Catherine Bigelow. Yeah, and Kenneth Anger. Remember yeah, Kenneth Anger, absolutely. And Kenneth
0: Anger actually will come up today. Okay, gotcha.
1: Well, let's start from a bird's eye view, looking down, because for me, it seems like, I went to this um, Kevin Geeks Out presentation once about punk, and one of the biggest topics that kept coming up again and again was this idea of authenticity, and it seems like whether or not you're a poser, it reminds me a lot of when I was a skate rat back in like the mid-late 80s, and I was a poser. I loved like the skater cut, and I loved the the clothes, and I loved watching like the Bones Brigade documentaries. But I sucked at skating. I mean, I, I pretty much knocked myself unconscious every time I got on a half pipe. But I loved like <laughs> all the accoutrement and the toys, and you know, at least looking like a like yeah. a skater. But you know, I definitely got called a poser a few times. And it's one of the things that keeps coming up. But when I think of punk. It reminds like I guess ten years old or eleven years old seeing like Star Trek The Voyage Home and a guy with like this crazy greasy <laughs> Mohawk on and you know, getting pinched out by Spock and that sort of thing. Like I only see the surface kind of commercialized version of it, but obviously punk goes back way earlier. So for you, what is the essence of punk and where 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 does it come from?
0: Well, to me, um, I don't have a really strict definition. I mean, the Mohawks and the leather jackets and things like that were not Essential to what I understood punk to be. I mean, I was born in 73, so by the time I'm really, you know, getting uh, starting to collect records and being around people, being around punk rockers and people like that, uh, the bands were more like Husker Du or the Minutemen. They, they were not this, this sort of sex pistols, mohawks, safety pins. Um, it was just. For me, it was just people that were playing the type of music that they wanted to on independent labels and doing things their own way um, and not restrained by anybody's expectations. Of course, the punk scene, as we see, I mean, there's, it comes up in some of the documentaries where it becomes really sort of a strict regimented idea. And that strict regimented idea is the one that's carried on. That's the one that appears in Star Trek. That's the one that appears <laughs> you know. It comes up with Green Day. See, this is the problem. Like by the time I'm really I'm old enough to go to shows, I'm buying records, I'm I'm hanging out, you know, I'm with people. It was all punk rock guys. Sonic Youth, all, all of it, pavement. It was just it's punk. And then Green Day, really. Green Day and Rancid and some of those bands sort of uh, appeared again in the early 90s, and you really couldn't say punk without referring to this green hair, safety pin, leather jacket, sort
1: of. Well, it reminds me of uh, National Lampoon's European Vacation when they arrive in London and they're driving around, and Rusty's like, Dad, that's it. That's what I want my hair to look like. And he's like, Rusty, you don't want to look like a rooster, do you? And it's just, you know, but it's one of those things where it's all the surface commercial. I feel like every revolution in art eventually gets commercialized and becomes cheesy and lame and people start cashing in on the craze and i i think i only saw kind of the tail end where they were trying to cash in on this anarchy and like you know down with society it's and i remember like you know 10 or 11 year old kids like putting like anarchy symbols on their blue jean jackets and i'm like you're fucking in fourth grade what do you mean anarchy like what are you talking about yeah
0: if you've ever i don't know if you've ever seen salt lake city punk but there's a great scene where he's in the mall, and he's explaining this, and he grabs this kid in the mall that's got plaid pants on and a leather jacket with an anarchy symbol on it, he grabs this thing. What is this shit? This is, that's England. That's whatever. That's, you know. um, so there was a lot of that, and you see that especially with the Minutemen. Um, and, and Black Flag as well. Black Flag goes on and has a lot of issues with this when they grow their hair long, and they don't, they're not, it's not a fashion statement.
1: Well, if anything, from the documentary, uh, The Decline of Western Civilization, the fashion statements from, I mean, I feel like if you're going to talk about American punk and the early days of punk, those guys are the genuine article, and there's no established look. I feel like with, like, hippies, you definitely have, you know, your stupid tie-dye t-shirts and your long Jesus haircut and your, your big shades, and there's, like, a certain costume that's kind of, like, the universal look, like back to nature, wearing sandals. But if you look at, like the guitar player for Black Flag and the Decline of Western Civilization. He's just kind of this geeky white dude with a yellow collared shirt, but who also believes in anarchy and can fucking shred on the guitar. (laughs) But like anything you think about punk, he is like the exact opposite, at least in terms of his outward appearance.
0: Yeah. um, When you see in Decline of Western Civilization, you see the Circle Jerks and Black Flag. Those are two of the bands, two of the best bands on there. Keith Morris was the singer with Black Flag like months before. And he's his dad owns a bait shop. And like Bill Stevens, who had gone and played in Black Flag, they were like these dorks that hung around the bait shop. Um This idea of punk is a very, it's a very uh, the the notion of punk that we've been talking about is a very easily, it's easy to market. Yep. This is why you have a shop like Hot Topic, I guess, like in the mall or whatever. It's like you buy a leather jacket, dye your hair, and you're a punk rocker. Where I'm not real hung up on who's a punk, who's not not a punk, who doesn't want to be called a punk. Um, As long as you're doing something that's immediate, that's genuine, that's... That's you, you know. It's not manufactured. It's not smoothed over. It's not. It's just a, an an immediate expression. It can even be a put on, as long as it comes across as immediate.
2: That's stupid punk rock. I don't, you know.
0: I just think of it as rock and roll because that's what it is.
2: One two three four. One, two, three. Ah. Stunning, says Robert Hilbert of the LA Times. Bracing, stimulating, and technically superb, Todd McCarthy of Variety. Anyone who wants to learn about the new music at arm's length should check out Penelope Spheres' chilling new film, Chris Morris, LA Reader. Suburban Voodoo. Doug Simmons, the Boston Phoenix. My house smells just like the zoo. Oh man, you can spit real good. Well. The decline documents a sociological phenomenon that is the foundation for the most shocking American youth movement in history. various films presents Fear, Black Flag, Circle Jerks, Germs, and X in... See it in a theater where you can't get hurt.
1: So when did you first see the decline of Western civilization? Because it seems like amongst cinephiles, that's always the place to start when it comes to digesting punk music i mean cinephiles it's very hard for them to understand anything unless they can do so in the context of a cinematic experience and in terms of documentaries this one's pretty goddamn cool and it's got all these great contrasting interviews with like obviously eugene is probably the most famous <laughs> shot in that entire movie to hear him talk about man like that guy's like a poser and like my friends they're like fighting each other and like well, i wish they could just be fighting like the poser i mean he's just delightful he's so fucking funny
0: then we get an idea of, of, of Gene's maybe—Gene might be headed, headed for some white supremacy skinhead territory. He's in the not
1: afraid <laughs> to drop some uh, inflammatory language about people who have slightly darker skin tones than he has. I mean, he uh, is uh, he is all in on the uh, pale white kid from you know uh, from the valley in Los Angeles.
0: Asking, Why are you so angry?
1: Well, I just see all the buses and the dirt. <laughs>
0: um, I think I must have seen this on— uh, Night flight, as a, you know, as a teenager. Later on, uh, much later after it was released, maybe when I was in my late teens or something, I tried to see if it had been on Night Flight. Must have been because they had a lot of music documentaries, punk, like uh, Another State of Mind, Social Distortion, and the the uh, Mind Bomb. Um, but this is one of those things that I can't remember not having
1: seen. Gotcha. I mean, for yeah. me, watching it's a hoot and a half because there's so many people in there when they're young and totally fucking sketchy, who would later go on to have all these like cool movie roles. Like the guy from uh, from Fear, he like played Mr. Body in Clue. Yeah. I was like, oh, I know who that guy is. Yeah. course Ben uh, Lee. Yeah, then you got like the bartender from uh, from Roadhouse. He's in the band X, which you had mentioned in, in the past. So yeah, oh, I, I, it felt familiar to me seeing some of these like because obviously you can't be a punk rocker your whole life or you're, you're at a certain point people just start looking at you like you're totally pathetic. And I like how these guys transitioned into being kind of character actors in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. But of course, if you're Mike Watts, you can do it
1: because you're just wearing a flannel shirt and
0: a pair of jeans. You know what I'm saying? And you're driving an old van and you're, um, a lot of this for me was like ancient history when I first came across Gotcha.
1: It. So these were like the founding fathers, like on the American punk scene. Well,
0: not so much Black Flag and the Circle Jerks. Um, I had a real immediate experience with them a little later. But like some of these bands, uh, X and Fear, and um, they were, they seemed to represent like an older kind of punk rock.
1: Okay. Um, Well, I mean, for the true diehard historians and aficionados, what is the earliest? Because it seems like with like heavy metal there's a lot of debate about where it started and obviously it all goes back to rhythm and blues and it's just like at what tempo and what kind of flavor and what kind of texture you, you're you're bringing to it and a lot of these songs that you hear in the decline of western civilization it's just like oh that's that's rock and roll but just it's a, just a slightly different version or if you're if you're a band like uh the germs it's like well if you don't know how to play your instruments and you don't know how to sing and you just want to like f- act like crazy people like it's rock and roll, but like through, their, through yeah. that through that fil- filter. But what if, for you is what is the earliest punk band? Because obviously everyone's going to talk about the Sex Pistols, but they couldn't have been the first. No, no, no.
0: It, uh, well, they uh, they definitely sort of put a pin in the map. But like Malcolm McLaren had seen television from New York City, uh, a band, a great band from mid seventies, Patty Smith, the Ramones, in that crowd. Um Richard Hell he had the sort of like safety pins and the he'd like ripped shirts and stuff. It wasn't Mohawk and stuff, but he took that back and he had this clothing shop called Sex with Vivian Lee. And they basically put this band together like the Monkees, almost. Gotcha. And um but no, I mean if you uh certainly the Velvet Underground are seen as proto. Interesting.
1: Um, okay, well, I love Velvet Underground. I mean, so I guess I do know a little bit about punk. I mean, that, for me, they're just uh, an extraordinary band. What 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 about them is so uh, indicative well, you, of being punk? You,
0: see, you know, you you've got in there. Uh, maybe it's Run Run Run, where he just totally like the guitar solo. He's about to go in. He he uh, hits a wrong string, hits a wrong note, or whatever. They just keep it in, an and then he goes. And you've got this sort of hammering rhythm, almost a menacing rhythm. With the Velvet Underground. And they certainly were separating themselves from hippie culture.
1: Oh, yeah, without a doubt. No, they, drugs
0: and, you no, know, if when
1: I hear Velvet Underground, I hear New York City. Like.
0: Yeah, it's um, and the Stooges, of course. Iggy Pop. Um, everybody knows Iggy Pop. Yep. Uh, but the Stooges, you hear a song like Search and Destroy. And then when you see Darby Crash cutting himself, fighting people. I mean, he's even he's infamous for sticking a microphone in a jar of peanut butter rubbing it. That's all Iggy Pop. <laughs> so I mean, it, 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 and he was really in, he was tuned into that. Uh, and David Bowie, Darby Crash is actually not exactly the moron he presents himself to be. Um, he had a plan. He had an idea of what they would do. He and Pat Smear, the guitar player from the Germs, had gone to school together at this some off the wall Scientology high school, and they got kicked out. Um, but he was well read, and uh, he. What they're doing is a lot of that's deliberate. Um, all the rolling around and the fighting people and trying to create a certain image, of destruction. Well, it uh, that with and-
1: the germs that, that singer like. He seems like a pretty, a good-natured kind of sweetheart on the home front, as they show in the documentary. But he's definitely a little off. Like he and his sister are laughing about like posing for pictures with some dead guy, and he definitely seems to yep. be unafraid of popping a shitload of pills and then getting on stage and just losing his mind. But he's like, but it, I had a really hard time listening to the germs because I can't stand that like baby talk way He's speaks. Like somebody give me a beer. Like I'll, like he's like oh it's like all of his consonants yeah. are kind of softened like he's talking baby talk. I'm like, are you just brain dead from all the shit you're putting in your system? Or is this an act or whatever? But people seem to love it, but I love how they can't get gigs and you get all these great interviews with their manager who's like, yeah, I feel like I'm babysitting yeah. a couple three-year-olds, but they can't find any clubs to uh, that'll sign them up because they just bring so much. They just leave a path of destruction in their wake wherever they go.
0: Yeah, she had to rent out a, a studio for them to play that show in. They could not play anywhere. Um, and it actually led to their breakup because they couldn't play anywhere. Um, uh, but that, yeah, a lot in of... The band. That, listen, that, that scene where she, they're cooking bacon together, that's a friend of his from high school. That's actually... Um, she had called him and he says, you can come over and interview me, but bring some food. <laughs> okay? But he's actually living with somebody called... a. a, a a flamboyant homosexual. Okay, but he didn't want to appear that way in the movie, so he they brought in a friend of his from high school, and she presents herself there as this domestic partner, but that was not the reality at all. I gotcha. Yeah. yeah see, and uh, he didn't want to be. He didn't want to appear with somebody. He, you know, he 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 had a rude comment about it, but he basically was afraid. To let people know what his living situation actually was.
1: Yeah, obviously late 70s is quite a different period from 2019. Now it's like no one will even bat an eye. But 40 years ago, yeah, people were a little but, bit more uh, judgmental about that sort of thing.
0: Especially in that scene. I mean, we have this idea that people who are into creative music or movies or whatever, you know, there's kind of this general idea, not we, but a general idea that these people are more open-minded. But that particular scene had a lot of knuckleheads in it. Um, kids from Hermosa Beach, and just these real like tough, like sort of like knuckleheads, you know. So well, talk have-
1: to us a little bit about what it's like to be at a punk show. Because I I, mean, I remember like an early '90s mosh pits, but early '90s mosh pits were quite a different thing. Because it seems like there's a very fine line between fighting and the dancing, in particular in the decline of Western civilization, where people are throwing elbows and shoving each other and you're always about on the verge of a fight breaking out like <laughs> like fierce performing and they're just the audience and the band they're just spitting on each other back and forth just spitting violently and eventually a brawl does break out and it's kind of a hard time like just Help us understand the appeal of throwing down and throwing elbows and shoving each other around. Because I, I, in the early 90s, I was just, I was always about being mellow and friendly. And I didn't I didn't really appreciate the mosh pits at all. I remember I walked into some high school band party down in this garage. And I walk into the room and the very first thing that happens is this fucking asshole headbutted me in the face. And I'm sure he thought it was amazing. But I was like, all right, now I have a, like a headache that's going to last for a week. So, yeah, fuck this fucking mosh pit.
0: Well, this, thing, this became an issue. I mean, this wasn't something that people... There may have been a time when they encouraged it, but almost every one of these bands that goes on uh, has to fight against this. The constant violence, the constant spitting, which is something they picked up, I guess, from punk fans in the UK. And there's a funny story about Black Flag uh, being spit on. Um but I I was older than that. By the time I started going out and going around and going to places, that stuff had kind of passed. And gotcha. people that were would even attempt that kind of thing, other than house parties or something like that, I mean, I, I was never, I don't think I ever went anywhere. I saw a lot of bands, man. And there's periods in the 90s where I probably, every week.
1: I mean, if somebody spits on that, me, they better be prepared to lose an eye or get their teeth kicked in. Like That is like a stoning offense as far as yeah. I'm concerned. <laughs> they um it's later on
0: black flags playing in scotland uh kira rossler's in the band at this point um and they're being spit on throughout the whole show they're constantly being spit on it's just like a rain of spit and when they finish you know she's hiding down behind her amp and the only one that can't hide is henry rollins he's out front everybody's just spitting on him when they're loading up their equipment after after the show Everybody's telling how great they were. And they were bit all the time. You know, and uh George Hurley makes a funny comment uh the drummer from the Minutemen about he's I wondered why they were always getting colds.
2: Yeah,
1: cuz they're I, getting just it's like a petri dish of disease on the stage from hundreds of people hawking liggies on them. Yeah, oh. it, but it seems like you know some of these. I mean, especially the guy, who, the uh, what's his name, uh, uh, Lee Ving. He's a pretty jacked, muscular, intimidating dude. Like, if you spit on him, you better be prepared to have a, a, a boot going down down your down your throat. But I have to say, when it comes to the music featured in this doc, the music that jumped out of me the most was X. And I, I knew I knew zero about their music at all uh, in any way, shape, or form prior to watching this movie. But what I liked were these really unusual harmonies that they would like the, they weren't really that specific about what and what notes yeah. they were harmonizing with but it creates this like eerie contrast almost like atonality in a lot of ways and i have to say like their music really jumped out at me in terms of a higher level of musicianship and a lot of cool old school kind of blues and country music and that sort of thing like it seemed like they had the most variety and the deepest bench when it came to their talent
0: that's i mean
1: billy zoom the guitar player yeah, he's had that great wide stance, and he just seemed like he yeah, you was know, like a total it, rockabilly.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's really—I mean, when they play rockabilly, I think that's when they're at their best. But they are a rock and roll band. They're really not. I think if anybody came um, unaware to this documentary, X is the band that they would leave thinking that's a great band.
1: Hell yeah, no, that—that that was my um, impression.
0: And I, but but now for me, I love X. Okay, there was a time when I had. Uh, more fun in the new world and under a big black sky like constantly with me um i don't i love x okay but they're not x is like the clash or something like that they use a sort of punk aesthetic to play rock and roll they billy zoom does not have the same limitations that demand a new way of doing things because he's such a phenomenal guitar player um eventually he leaves the band and they're just forget it you know and John Doe has these kind of literary pretensions. I mean, one of the songs they play in "There's Nausea," you know. Um, and they're they're a great band, but they're not what's coming. Gotcha. They're kind of like the tail end. Um, and as much as I love listening to them, I mean, they're the they're the opening theme that song they're playing in the beginning. is X.
1: Yeah, it's um, killer. I loved it.
0: I, I think you sh- uh, I think you'd love X. I mean, they're and they've got a, a good back catalog. Like, they probably made at least three or four records that were just outstanding.
1: So, yeah, I mean, just most of the bands in this, you well, like, you have to have, like, subtitles to even understand what they're talking about. Like, when I hear the singer from Black Flag just kind of screaming and gibberish, it just, for whatever reason, maybe if I'd heard it as an angry teenager, I would have uh, responded to it. But at age 42, I was like, all right, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I, I dig the intensity with which your guitar player is throwing down, but just the... I'm way past the point where I have this like teenage sense of rebellion and but what I did admire about Black Flag was how they reinvested any like i mean these they were not making money at the time of this documentary, I think they shot it like in seventy nine and how and that- whatever little trickle of revenue that was coming in, they reinvested it into marketing into promotion I mean they were living off of nothing like in little closets in their practice room, so I did really admire the uh I guess the complete total overwhelming dedication of the band members to the entity of black flag. So that would really impressed me, but I I, I don't picture myself hanging out and listening to a bunch of black flag records moving forward.
0: Well, I I will say this. Um, you've got, uh, Ron Reyes as a singer. He was only the singer for a little bit of time. And I don't think that set is particularly good. Um, they play white minority, which is a good song, but, uh, the rest of them, I mean, they're, they're really, that's not uh, a very good representation of them. That's one of the things gotcha. I've always liked in this documentary. Um, uh, when you see the circle jerks, I think the circle jerks are the best ones on there. When Keith Moore, he runs after somebody, and then he comes flying back on the stage and grabs a mic. I think they're doing Hollywood, or I just want some skank or something. Um, but what you say about their dedication, I mean— Black Flag is, <laughs> they're an example of sheer obstinance and what obstinance can accomplish. If you just, all right, they, it's not like they were setting out to be something different. I mean, Keith Morris and Greg Ginn, according to Keith Morris, and you have to be skeptical of some of the things you hear, but they decided to form this band when they went to see Thin Lizzy open up for Journey. Okay. Greg Ginn's a deadhead. A lot of this has, to, when they put their first, and I'm going to tell you this EP, man, Nervous Breakdown, is probably the greatest EP, maybe next to Watery Domestic, that was ever released. But they recorded it above a bar while a band was playing downstairs, so they had to turn the volume all the way up to keep the band downstairs out of the mix. <laughs> we, it wasn't a plan. Do you see what I'm saying? Like it wasn't, it wasn't this plan to take over punk rock or to establish the network. That punk rock will rely on for the next ten years because that's another thing that has to be these knuckleheads, these idiots in that church, in particular Greg Ginn and and Chuck Dukowski, the dude with the Mohawk, the one that's searching, um, they are the one they were probably more responsible than anybody for setting up the network that the whole independent scene in the US would rely on for the next 12,
1: 14 years. Gotcha. All right. Because one of the replacements would open for, open for them in the early 80s and stuff like that. Well, Husker
0: Du, you know, played an after party at a Black Flag show and that's how they got hooked up with SST Records. That's the other thing. Greg Ginn, who you described as kind of a dork, and he was. Just this the guitar player. He's, he's kind of a dorky, lanky...
1: Yeah, no, he looks like a, like know, a, ma- like a mathlete. He looks like someone who'd be yeah. really good at chess.
0: Well, he had started SST as a company that made like radios he was really big into ham radio so you got people hanging out at a bait shop and somebody who's a teenager in his garage who's selling radio parts and he used the sst name solid state transmitters to put out their record because nobody else would they couldn't play anywhere nobody would put their record out so they put it out themselves again it wasn't this plan to create the independent music scene in the united states they just they didn't have an option And when they couldn't play in Los Angeles anymore, see, they weren't the cool kids. X was the cool kids. Uh, The Jerners were the cool kids. They were from Los Angeles. These morons were from Hermosa Beach. I mean, they were like the sticks, you know. Um, When they couldn't play in Los Angeles, they hit the road, and they would just drive until they saw punk rockers, establish a contact, and then come back and play that town again. I mean, they played places in the middle of nowhere, Shreveport, you know, I mean, it, it, some town in Missouri, and then they would come back every year. And what they would do is they would help other bands. What well, Husker Doon talks about this when they they're touring, and you'll hear Bob Mould say, "All we needed was a phone number in that town." Well, they almost certainly got that phone number from Black Flag. Gotcha. The debts that the debt that is owed to them for punk rock and indie music throughout the eighties and into the nineties is like it's impossible to overestimate.
1: Well, I can remember when I first got into skating I and mean, that was just like fall of eighty five, but like nineteen eighty six, there were definitely certain bands that were associated with skating and it seemed like Black flag was at the top of the list. So just the logo, every skate rat that I knew had a black flag poster, whether they listened to the music or not, or a black flag sticker on the, on the bottom of their skateboard. Just, they were part of like, just the whole culture. It just, like I, if I mentioned in the past, for whatever reason, because of the, like, my dad's taste in music, I was all in on the sixties at age 10 or 11. And so I completely, totally missed all the counterculture kind of angry, rebellious music that other kids my age were listening to.
0: Well, you know, for me, this—the reason that Black Flag and the Minutemen, I, when I was a kid, I grew up in the Baptist church, and that meant church on Sunday morning and Sunday evening.
1: Oh, that's too, thats one too many. Yeah, yeah. 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 one or the other. Like, I mean, when I was when I went away to <laughs> boarding school, we had church every Sunday evening. Like, I think the most unhappy time of my life was eighth grade when I would have church and confirmation class back to back, which yeah. took up the entire Sunday morning. But yeah, you can only handle but so much churching up.
0: Well, there was no. A lot of times there wasn't any point in trying to go out and play. You just get dirty. Have to put your church clothes back on. You're going to have to get. So I would sit in my room and listen to the top forty. Uh, Casey Kasem, I guess, mm-hmm. was doing it back then or whatever. And but even at that age, because my, you know, my daddy was in the first wave of rock and roll. Okay, Elvis, Chuck Berry, he that was his thing, and he had to go out and find it because his parents would only listen to the Grand Ole Opry or Lawrence Welk. I mean, mm-hmm. it just drives him nuts. So he makes enough money to buy radio. He listens to the Big Ape in Jacksonville, Randy's record shop uh, in Nashville, and he's part of that first wave of rock and roll. Um, and as it takes a turn towards the British invasion and pop music, and so he stays with R and B. He stays with soul music and urban blues. He loved BB King, but I we uh, was constant. Sam Cooke, Aretha Franklin, Ike and Tina Turner. I mean, those were the those were that was the music that he played. Um, and I would listen to uh, uh, The Best of Sam Cooke and Aretha's Gold and B.B. King's 16 Greatest Hits. I had those, and I would play them on a tape recorder. Um, and then my mother, who's a baby boomer, was obsessed with the Beatles. Um, the first movie I ever saw that I can remember seeing was A Hard Day's Night in our living room. It's a good place to start. Well, a reel-to-reel projector. They used to, they used to check it out <laughs> in the library and nice. play it up wall I mean this is mid 70s probably but it's the first uh movie that i can remember seeing and when we also did king kong the old one and had kids over from the neighborhood and sat in the living room and watched it projected on the wall but fortunately my mother also loved surf music right? so when i was 10 83 christmas I was about to turn 11 i got i got a turntable a little stereo for christmas and I was given uh, Motown's twenty-fifth anniversary four disc and a compilation of surf music. On that surf on that surf record was uh, The Surfing Bird by the trashman. And I I like to lost my mind because I've been sitting in this room listening to Journey, Steely Dan, all this very like smoothed out, just sort of honky, just just I mean Whereas I had been listening to all this immediate music, whether it was Motown or Stax or Ike Tina Turner or Dick Dale or Jan and Dean, the Beach Boys. I mean, it at least had an immediacy to it. And I'm listening to, you know, Rosanna by Toto every Sunday afternoon. And I'm about to lose my mind. Um, so when I first heard Black Flag, my rage wasn't political. It wasn't from alienation. It was oral. You know what I'm saying?
1: Like, gotcha. So it's just kind of a nice primal scream that was quite distinctive from what you've been... I mean, the, the established norms throughout so much of the 70s.
0: And What I've been listening to, because I didn't have a
1: record player,
0: you know, I mean, until then. And it's just... I can see myself as a nine-year-old flipping the bird at that little transistor radio when I hear, like, nervous... <laughs> it made me so mad, you know? But, uh... You know, occasionally Blondie would slip in there or uh, Duran Duran or, you know, people bag on New Wave, but man, if it hadn't been for New Wave, I mean, I went—I first went to the record shop where all this started as an 11-year-old because I was trying to find more Duran Duran records. These record shops in the 80s and the mid-80s and early 80s were flush with records because people were selling them off.
1: I gotcha. So good time to go dig into the back bins.
0: Yeah, it's all, it was all perfect timing because people were trading them in for CDs, the record shops could stay afloat selling Led Zeppelin records, and the college kids that worked there could order records from SST or alternative tentacles or stiff fingers, and there was a community in these places. And as an 11 year old, they took me in instead of
1: like, if I'd have been a little bit older than no, That's have. how I felt at the comic shop. When I went to the comic shop, I was like, all right, ah, I belong. So I had a similar experience.
0: And those kids put REM records in my, it was a South, you know, a college town, an independent record shop. You had to buy REM records. There really wasn't any way around it. Um, and that was my entree into sort of uh, independent music, although REM was not really an independent band. I, mean, I, mean, I My first band.
1: exposure to REM was when they were already one of the most beloved bands on the on the face of the planet. I, mean, I guess it was probably REM Green, which I remember well, the first time I remember hearing people mention them. But at that point, they were already a, just a phenomenon.
0: Yeah, and at this point, they were a phenomenon in college towns in the South. I mean, because, you know, they're from Athens, Georgia. Gotcha. Um, they were... I mean, that that was on, especially in the South. Like, there's not really a lot of purchase here for hardcore punk. Um, you know, some of the politics and stuff just don't really work. I mean, especially around here, no one considers themselves a worker you know you've got the working man or whatever
1: yeah but they, don't, but they don't they don't sit around talking about the being like the proletariat and reading Karl Marx and that sort of thing they they take pride in being a, a skilled blue collar guy but they're not it's there's not some sort of like socialist mantra at the core of it so
0: that's not their identity at all it's no. it's nobody. people work in general
1: the exact total polar opposite
0: <laughs> so i never had any i never i never the minutemen were not important to me because of politics so like when we talk about lyrics and stuff like that I that I just didn't care it was the music it was the immediacy of it the sort of aggression of it um, which and it sounded like like somebody was actually like it wasn't being produced in a factory it sounded like somebody was playing it in your own garage
1: well also what I liked about my watching the decline of Western civilization is that you- while it's easy to criticize some of the fans for their love of like smashing each other's faces in while listening there is a side of it that I totally embrace because they are in the mood to have a good time they're getting ripped they're laughing they're dancing they're there to have like a this great like like I don't know just like explosion of energy and when i look at some young kids today who are constantly talking about you know, th- their feelings and, you know, politics and blah, blah, blah. Like, they, when they seem so fragile and they seem so uninterested in having a good time. So uninterested in humor and so uninterested in violence. I feel like where the hell is this youthful rebellion that personified the, like the late seventies, early eighties, late 70s, early eighties. Like, Oh, I would love it. If that punk spirit could come back, because I think kids, if they're not going out and getting completely trash and having a great time and getting in fights and wrecking cars, th- then they end up like having this like pent-up energy that like affects them in a negative way later on like you kind of need to you need to rebel, you need to act out, you need to get the shit out of your system and maybe you lose a few kids along the way but i feel like the generation is better for it so i have to say i had a lot of respect for these kids cuz at least they like to fucking get rowdy and i just feel like so many kids today my, I mean, I have a lot of younger brothers and sisters, and the, so I get exposed to some kids, and he, and I just, it just seems like the whole world's been childproofed for them, and I don't think it helps them. Yeah. Well, I don't want to be the. I, I always I take
0: I, um I I, I take uh, comfort in knowing that very few people were involved in this. Like so, hopefully somewhere, I just assume that kids are doing something that's expressive. It's sort of uh, aggressive, and and I I I, I hope. You know that they are out there somewhere. I just assume that I'm old and I don't know
1: about it. That's true. It very well could be a situation where here we are, 2019, where in 2059, a couple of dorks on the internet are saying, talking about some documentary about a music scene that was a, in a little little nook or a little niche somewhere in the middle of bumfuck, and that we're totally blissfully unaware. To the same degree that somebody who was 42 in 1979 was probably totally unaware of the emerging punk scene in Los Angeles.
0: That's my hope. You know, and I know that, um, but but one thing that does sort of, like, make me wonder is there seemed to be, like, a cycle of, like, real rock and roll, pop, real rock and roll, pop, real rock and roll, pop. Real, but that cycle seems to have disappeared. Like, my parents knew who, like, say, Nirvana was, and they couldn't have given, you know, they couldn't have cared, but it was so... Uh, pervasive
1: yeah it was everywhere even if you didn't own the records even if you didn't care you there was no d- avoiding smells like teen spirit it was everywhere
0: and i just wonder if maybe i don't know maybe it is dead you well, know there's a
1: we because of the splintering of pop culture i think it's more and more difficult for a band or a movie or a book or a show to have that giant broad kind of cultural relevancy it's it still happens, like, you know, you talk about Game of Thrones, the most popular show in the world, where it gets, like, I think every episode gets stolen about 100 million times. Or you talk about, like, the yeah. Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's not punk rock, but it's certainly pervasive, and everybody knows about it. And so I think these pop culture events do happen, but because in the late 80s and early 90s, like, there were just fewer radio stations and fewer places to listen to music, so if something hit big, I think it just it made a bigger impact. Like, a hit show in the 70s would get like 70 million viewers. Whereas now a hit show, you're lucky if you get 10 or 15 million, even though there are more people and more options for consuming entertainment. So I think when somebody finally did break through, they just had a, a, just a, a disproportionate impact. Whereas now we just have this, this splintering of pop culture into so many like little minuscule communities.
0: But I will say this, and you, you touched on it. You see Black Flag living in that church, and you see them sleeping in closets, and that went on until 1987. They never, now Greg Ginn, who ran the record shop and is hated by everyone who's ever come into contact with him, may have have put aside some change. But Henry Rollins talks about, this is much later, man, that if he got some money from his parents and he went to the store to buy some food, he would have to make sure he ate it there. (laughs) All the crumbs off his face, because if he came back with food, that they would freak out. Like, where'd you get that? Uh, Greg Ginn's parents would make, like, cheese sandwiches for him, and they would have these stacks
1: of cheese sandwiches until they molded. Yeah, so they, they weren't living like Motley Crue and rock stars and dating supermodels like Heather Locklear and, or actresses like Heather Locklear and that sort of thing. It was, it was a, definitely a more rugged existence.
0: So even though people can't sell records today, they can't whatever, you know, who knows, man. Maybe it's what out there. What is the most commercially prefer-
1: successful pop uh, punk band of all time? Probably Green Day.
0: Sad to say. Gotcha.
1: Yeah, I, I, Green Day is one of those bands where I don't even know if I've ever heard one of their songs. Like, I, I know they're like really popular, but I, 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 it's, it's embarrassing just how little attention I've paid to the majority of pop culture phenomenons when it comes to music yeah. in my own lifetime.
0: Well, you weren't. You're not missing anything on that. I mean, I remember when the record hit big. I mean, it was very much like costume, like punk costumes. Like them rancid. What was, there was another band, "Keep Them Separated" or whatever. But it was just like, oh, I know, are, yeah,
1: I know that. Yeah, I remember that. I remember the music video at least from uh, like the early '90s. And y'all are doing this for real.
0: Like, I, it's this is not a joke. I mean, you really are coming out with green hair and like trying to reestablish all these, all so these so rules. Is Keep or, them
1: separated. Is that considered a punk song? I, I definitely know that I think song. Were part of that whole. Although I, you, you hear the, that in weight rooms and like gyms and things like that. yeah. yeah I mean. Green Day's had a Broadway show out of one of their records. I feel once you start doing Broadway shows, you, you, you lose the punk label for all time. You, at that point, you are performing for old ladies and gay men.
0: It's a mall. It's mall punk, is what it is, and it, it was extremely popular for a couple of years in the mid '90s, uh, which was hard. Not hard. I mean, this is really hard. So. But like if you, like, like I said to me, Sonic Youth, Pavement, Yellow Tang, all these bands that were just doing their own thing were punk rock. Well, you couldn't say you listen to punk rock music after Dookie by Green Day. I mean, that was just not, that was not an option because it was, again, this very strictured sort of set of rules and costumes and everything else, so.
1: Gotcha. How
2: it came together. Oh yeah. Uh, I met D-Boom when I was 13. And he was 13 also, and uh, where we lived in the park, uh, he's playing army and he fell out of a tree on me, and um, <laughs> uh, d Boone played guitar. This is the tree, and I come uh, out here, I think right here, and he leaps out on me. I was like, whoa, and this guy in this t-shirt, you know. But I was quite smitten with him. So that's actually our beginning. It's right here. See, a whole idea of Minuteman a lot of ways was to make our life in, into art. The Minutemen were always shockingly original and
1: incredible—you know, poetry and power,
2: and... intense, intricate music. And I said, "This is punk rock. These guys are all over the place."
1: It was a different kind of intelligence. That you know, wasn't like you know, police beat me. But what a
2: band live, just absolutely smoking.
1: One of the most perfect musical moments I'd ever seen.
2: The Minutemen's music seemed to have no real precedent and it was radical. I remember that the, the George just played so fast. Since my legs and arms were busy, all I could do was shake my hair, so <laughs> that's what I did. Mike's bass playing is so over the top and so
1: full of ideas. And the band has such an amazing spirit. Little man in the garden So, uh, digital toast to you. i got uh, hey, a pour of a Bud Light. Is that appropriate? I've got a Yingling, so. I uh, gotcha. It's all cheap beer, so. Excellent. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about this documentary, We Jam Econo, the story of the Minutemen from 2005. For people who have not seen this documentary, set the stage for us. What is this documentary all about?
0: Well, it, it tells the story of the Minutemen, a very personal story about them.
1: It's, a, it's
0: kind of a tragic story. It has a kind of, if you don't know anything about him and you just go in fresh, you may wonder throughout the film, well, where's Dee Boone? Where's Dee Boone?
1: You know? I, I was I, a total blank slate on the Minutemen prior to seeing this documentary. Did you realize
0: that somebody was missing, though? I mean, as you were watching well,
1: it? I, there's the the specter of tragedy kind of looming over it when like, you know, he obviously is not in the old man interviews. He's only in the young man interviews. So I knew whether it was going to be through drugs or an accident or suicide, I knew at some point somebody was going to go. Somebody. Holy uh, mackerel.
0: Sorry about that, but that's my, um, I woke up at 2.30 this morning with a raging toothache, and that's my reminder to go take some ibuprofen. The thing that ties, of course, this to decline of Western civilization is the Minutemen, when that, when that documentary is being shot, the Minutemen are probably just months from being signed, or not signed, but having a record put out by Greg Ginn and SST. Okay. They are part of that scene, but they're not part of it yet. So they're not in '79. They're not. They're not going to be out there. Um, but they become the second release by SST, "The Paranoid Chant." These kids, I mean, as you can, as you watch the documentaries, they have uh, a real sort of like. Uh, I say mission, but it sounds too political. Although they were very political, their artistic expression uh, is probably singular in that whole scene. Um, they were drawing on funk and uh, Blue or Cult. They love Creedence Clearwater Revival. They were just – they were – I don't know they had a vision. That might be too – Restrictive for what they were. But they definitely seem
1: to always be evolving. Their sound always seemed to be growing and changing. And when I when I heard that some of their influences were like Ornette Coleman and John Coltrane, I was like, oh, all right. Well, only true jazz dorks or intellectuals like Ornette Coleman. So obviously, I could tell they were consuming some pretty intense stuff.
0: But that was stuff that had been suggested to them after people had heard them initially. They had no idea who these people were. Oh, gotcha. A lot of like post-punk bands that did a lot of crazy stuff, and they just assumed when they heard these records that they were on the scene. And it wasn't until later that they figured out that these were old jazz players, that they were not around anymore. There's There's a, a sort of naiveness to them, which is, I think, somewhat manufactured and cultivated but it really is there
1: well they talk about when they first got started they didn't understand the idea of tuning up your instruments yeah. and how they thought that wh- how tight your strings were as a matter of like stylistic choice <laughs> and it's like no you tune things up so that you can sound like you're on the on the same page but it's one of those things where yeah they they started playing like when they were in high school and their mothers loved it because they knew where their kids were and they knew you know they weren't weren't getting in trouble but it seems like as they grew Their level of musicianship continued to grow and change and evolve to the point where they had enormous respect from their peers because obviously a lot of punk bands out there they don't know how to fucking play and so (laughs) it's just the the difference between being professional musicians versus like well well intentioned amateurs.
0: But well intentioned amateurs can also uh, you know can oftentimes when they're dealing with those restraints come up with things that that are new and really but the minute man.
1: Like the Ramones, they did a lot of yeah. albums with just three chords. I mean, you can you can learn your first three chords in your first... I mean, I, I played bass from 8th grade to 11th grade, but I picked up the bass because my buddies had a band and they needed a bass player. And after a couple of lessons, I knew enough where I could play some basic rock and roll songs. And before, like, a few weeks had gone by, we were playing, like, Eagles tunes and things like that. So it doesn't take that much knowledge to at least be able to just kind of keep in the stay yeah, in the swing of things. have a
0: good time, have fun, play your music. But they, of all the people, you know, oftentimes one of the merits of punk rock is, is, is said to be that it let everybody in. And of all the people, certainly in that hardcore scene, that took advantage of being let in, it was the Men of Men. Um, they did not adhere to anybody's idea of what they should sound like. This became an issue for a lot of bands, but the hardcore punks especially expected a certain thing. And the Minute when we're not going to do that. They I think like by
1: 1985, they're doing like acoustic albums, and you're like, "Whoa, okay, that's different." Playing acoustic
0: songs, playing. Um, but they uh, like the Meat Puppets, which is a band that doesn't come up, and I think they come up in the Wee Jamicono. But they were another band that took advantage. SST put out that took advantage of just the openness to do what they wanted to do. Um, but the Minute Man, I, I can't like I can't overstate how much I love that band um but to get this really personal story about how they met when they were kids and just you know it's uh to me it's pretty moving
1: well i i mean it's hard not to kind of get on their team before the end of it when you see d boone this kind of big chubby dude and loafers <laughs> just bouncing around performing and just having so much fun it's such an unusual contrast you think oh well if you're gonna jump around like that maybe you should put on some tennis she's like nope i'm a I'm a big chubby fat guy and i'm gonna wear these dainty little loafers and i'm just gonna i'm gonna do my thing
0: yeah and they um you talk about not having a uniform or not looking the part can you imagine trying to market that bunch?
1: Or like the band, was it the drummer who has like those big old like mop of bangs kind of hanging down in front and stuff like that? I had a similar look when I was like 14. Well, I had the big long bangs in front. So, but they definitely do not fit the stereotype.
0: Mike Watt called it the unit. That big flop that hung down in his face. He called it the unit. Gotcha. Um, and George Hurley had started out really the drummer as you know wanting to be like in Van Halen. Um, they didn't even know each other. They graduated the same year, the same high school. They didn't know each other.
1: So was this group an influence on later bands like uh, like the Chili Peppers? Because it like Flea's a big fan. Chili
0: Peppers. I mean, if you want to take what the Minutemen are doing and you want to sell it on the radio, do what the Chili Peppers did with it. Um, it was uh, that just that kind of funk, punk, but not... I mean, if I say funk-punk now, you immediately think of the Chili Peppers. You think of people jumping around naked and just with moving some, out. With socks on their dicks and yeah, stuff that. like that. Yeah, not that at all. Um, they had been really, you know, after punk in England, which by the time these these kids come around, Black Flag, Circle Jerks, Minutemen, they are the second generation, and that's something that had already happened in the past. A lot of people were like, this is over, man. What are you doing? Um and post-punk in England, bands like the pop group, the Au Pairs, Wire, the Fall, have started. And Wire puts out a record called Pink Flag, which is a huge influence on them. And it's this kind of angular, almost funk or whatever. And Black Flag takes, I mean, the Minutemen take like the best part of the song. It's almost like breakbeat. They repeat it two or three times, and 45 seconds is over. And the, the amount of stuff that they accomplish in those in that short span of time is just amazing.
1: Yeah, it's like there were like a lot of records by these guys that were like 25, 30 minutes long. And it's like, you know, you have like 10 songs in like 30 yeah. or 40 seconds. And you would kind of make your statement, and then you'd move on to the next track.
0: And even though um, they internally argued a lot about this, D. Boone especially was a big sloganeering left-wing political type. Um And they argued a lot about that. I mean, Mike Watt, I mean, from what I've read and and heard Mike Watt in interviews was that, you know, a lot of times he thought it was a little naive, but he was real big on those slogans. But even at that, they could come up with things that were very funny.
1: Well, talk about that internal tension within the band because it seems like these two old friends talked a lot of serious shit and had these, like, screaming matches driving around. But that tension between them politically and creatively is what led to them having their distinctive sound.
0: They did, and you know, uh, they talk about this in the documentary, and, and you, it, it is immediate. Like, it's one of the re- one of the ways you know that you're listening to a Minuteman song before it plays out. They, they treated their instruments as if they were, what they say? Sovereign states. I mean, if the guitar is supposed to be high, and they don't know anything about these instruments when they start, and the bass is supposed to be low, Mike Watt's bass is about as low as you can get, and D Boone's guitar is about as high as you can get. Um, and so the tension is playing out in the music as well. I mean, it's almost like they're two separate, uh, it's two separate entities that are coming together. And this, these arguments that they would have where Mike Watt would try to explain that these things are a little more nuanced, and they played out in the music as well. But they, I don't think they ever were not devoted to one another.
1: Well, wow. t- explain to, uh, what it means when they say We Jam Econo, because that comes from a 1985 interview.
0: <coughs> and we do it on the cheap. Uh, that first Paranoid Time was done for like 50 bucks, I think, their first single. Uh, they toured on the cheap. They did it what they had around. Um, they got uh, on Buzz or Howl, which is an EP they put out, was outstanding. They got three tracks done for free by offering a song to the producer for a compilation. Um, they just made do with what they had, and that's what that meant. And that carried on. Um, I read an article recently, Bob Mastanovich was talking about payment plan like five or six shows in like three or four days. And, you know, to them, that was jamming a So it, it, it stayed in that, that spirit stayed throughout as long as that scene lasted until it petered out. It was
1: It was important because they didn't have any money. What's your opinion of their album uh, Double Nickels on the Dime? Because it seems like there's a lot of uh, universal, uh, I guess, um, yeah, a lot of consensus that is for, for that scene, one of the most influential albums of that decade.
0: Well, there's, I don't know um, how influential it well, I wish it had been more influential. But there's no denying that that record is, is colossal. I mean, it is, uh, it's like 40-something songs, I think.
1: That's a lot of (laughs) songs. I mean, it's...
0: But there are songs on there, like Two Beads in the Inn, like Little Man with a Gun in His Hand, I mean, you... Or uh, uh, Corona. I mean, you just can't... You know the opening to Jackass.
1: You remember the show Jackass? Oh, yeah, man. I I remember the movies better, because, like, the show... I didn't. I, went, I was going through this really annoying phase where I was uh, very snobby and condescending about TV, and so I would oh. uh, refuse to have cable wherever I lived, and I basically went without cable starting in 1991 when I went away to boarding school through college, and then up till I didn't get cable TV until Jesus. How long did I go with? That? I kind of had internet. I didn't have cable TV again until 2011 when I moved into my apartment down the village. So I missed the jackass <laughs> phenomenon on TV, but I saw the three flicks.
0: Well, Corona's the theme song to that. Michael gotcha. White didn't know what they were doing. He didn't know what it was like. or So he says that like, they seem to be enjoying themselves and being honest about it. So, yeah, sure, you can use it. Um, there's a song on there, a political song for Mike, uh, Michael Jackson to sing. He actually sent that to Michael Jackson.
1: In, for him. Any, any response from MJ? Oh, no.
0: He, last I heard, there's been no response and nothing found in the archives. But there are hours and hours and hours of, of archival footage. Well, so. it's
1: incredible to me just how much their aesthetic changed from the, their earliest beginnings. I guess the, some of the earliest concert footage we see in the documentaries, like 79, 80, where it's still... Pretty rudimentary, and they're still, you know, like a, had that garage band flavor. And then by like 1985, it's almost like a like a country western band with a lot of acoustic music. I mean, they just they kept evolving and changing and growing. And I feel like an artist must always be in a state of becoming or you end up becoming one of those weirdos who's like 65, still dressing like you're 25, oh, and you're performing yeah. in Vegas for people who remember you from decades ago. But I feel like there's nothing more pathetic than when you see somebody, like when you look at Elton John, who's had like the same costume, like locked in amber for decades. Like, don't you ever wanna look like something other than what you've been looking like for the last couple of decades, like in a, in a row? But people just, they get trapped inside this public persona that people recognize as. Like John Travolta, he did his thing with this plastic surgery. <laughs> Where he had his face permanently carved up to be in the the classic John Travolta kind of grin and expression. It's like he almost looks like the Joker now. I'm like, you don't need to look like that your your whole life, but yeah, it's it's celebrities get trapped in those in, in, inside that fear. Well, and they you
0: know you look at Robert Smith from the Cure here recently who said something funny at the Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he's still wearing that crazy hair. He's still got the eyeliner on, and it's just like, man, come on. You turned 60 today.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, for me, it just starts feeling pathetic after a while. When you, when you And like, I mean, when I live in L.A., I see this all the time where you see these like 65-year-old people with like frosting in their hair and still trying to talk and dress as if they're like 18 or 19. I'm like, you had your shot. That's right. You, you didn't die young, so you can count yourself lucky. So just age gracefully and accept it. But that, that window has closed.
0: Yeah, and they, but see, they never presented that type of. I mean, D Boone could have worn that work overall for the rest of his life. Nobody, Mike Watt shows up, and again, in the flannel shirt and jeans, and he doesn't, he just looks like a. Late middle aged man. Yeah,
1: yeah. That 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 kind of gear you can you can you can wear your whole life. And I've definitely, as as someone who's been wearing jeans and T shirts for like ten years in a row now, maybe I'm guilty of uh, not expanding my horizons (laughs) in terms of fashion as well. So maybe I should maybe I should talk a little less shit on that front.
0: Well, they but they can't be pigeonholed into that. Uh, Paranoid Time is 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 a fantastic hardcore record. You can't beat it, man.
1: And when you say hardcore, do you mean in terms of tone, or is that a specific kind of subgenre of punk?
0: Well, it's a subgenre of punk, and that's where the Black Flag, Circle Jerks, Minor Threat on the East Coast, um, Husker Du starts out that way. Uh, even the Replacements play a little bit of hardcore, but that's just like uh, Bob Mould explained it like we wanted to be faster than the Ramones, and then we heard the Dickies, so we want to be faster than the Dickies. It's just a really fast sort of get to the essence. Um, riff-heavy punk rock that usually doesn't last more than 45 seconds a minute and a half. And there are still hardcore bands, but it really was a scene that flashed for a couple of years. Gotcha. Was gone. I mean, and the Minutemen certainly were not beholden to that. The Meat Puppets weren't beholden to that. Black Flag was not beholden to that. They started to play music that just infuriated everybody because it was more heavy metal punk um, and they grew their hair out long, and people would just get mad. You know, this isn't hardcore. They spit on them. Well, in the
1: eighties, you have this crazy thing with the hair bands and the glam rock, but, et cetera, all exploding and growing. And I imagine for kids like Eugene and the decline of Western civilization, they were probably utterly horrified by some of the developments in rock and roll in the mid eighties. No doubt, and
0: but they were mostly horrified by Black Flag and some of these other bands because, you know, I hear people who are a little bit or much younger. They sort of scoff at the idea of selling out. Like, why would anybody care about that? Well, at the time, you got to remember, if if I'm into hardcore right now, I can get on the internet and I can find thousands of people who love hardcore. You know, it, it's just the nature of the internet. At the time, man, if you you have a handful of people and a handful of bands that you could consistently count on, and when one of those turned the corner and went a different way, you lost one, and it was almost impossible to replace them.
1: Yeah, well, it's like when nerds my age see franchises going sour and not li- and we don't like the direction. Yeah. It's like, well, now I no longer have Star Wars in my life, or now I no longer have Star Trek in my life, and you, those don't grow on trees. <laughs> you can't, not, you, you not. can't just go out and find another Star Wars to be a fan of.
0: So if Black Flag starts playing these nine-minute, like, just bug-out songs, well, you've lost one of your, you know, you've lost somebody that you could count on. And it it, it mattered, and then when you get to the late 80s, where most of the first wave of bands that do end up signing to major labels, like The Replacements, like those could do, they start making terrible records.
1: Well, maybe that's as good a time as any to start switching gears to this documentary, Color Me Obsessed, about The Replacements, because that's obviously a huge part of the documentary, and I was totally, completely a blank slate on The Replacements, and After watching the documentary, in a lot of ways, I still kind of am because this documentary makes a very unusual stylistic choice of including zero music. And so I looked up a few songs along the way that people seem to really uh, celebrate and call attention to, but this documentary came out in 2012, it's readily available, but they have this unusual stylistic choice where it's purely testimonials of fans, of peers, of journalists, people who were there at the beginning, people who were there at the end, people who saw one or two shows, people who saw four or five hundred shows. And so you just get this mosaic of different impressions of the band at various stages along the way. But where do you stand on the replacements as a band? Is Eric Bartleum a fan?
2: I remember thinking two things very vividly. First, that they were the worst band I'd ever seen. And second, that they were the best band I'd ever seen. You could go see them on one night and they'd be blindingly brilliant, close to a religious experience. You could go see them on another night and they could just be complete dog shit. They were a glorious mess. But music like The Replacements is, you know, about engagement with your own imagination and hope and disappointment, and also ability to fail miserably. I've seen the band three times.
1: am a total of seven times.
2: Probably like eight.
1: Eight or nine times. Oh, about 10 times. 10, 12 times. Probably about 15. 20, 25.
2: Probably seen the replacements 25 times. 30 times. 30 to 40. I want to say 60. 80. Maybe 100 and more, think about it. Oh, I'm sure a couple hundred. 300 times. I can honestly say I spent more time with them than anyone else growing up. I spent more time listening to Please Meet Me than talking to any friend I ever had. For me, greatest band of all time. For me, The Replacements made my world a better place. I mean, they were just a rock and roll band, you know, but also weren't the Rolling Stones just a rock and roll band.
0: I am, um, ah, I love the first couple of records. Because they are punk rock records, um, but they really like Paul Westerberg they became the you know he was the, the sort of central songwriter. He's I mean, kind
1: of the brainchild of the whole thing.
0: But Bob Stinson is probably the id of the whole thing. and Bob's without Bob Stinson, and this comes up in the documentary. Um, and is he the
1: Bob, one who was a, basically a child when he joined the band. he was the uh, crazy this, bass player or is it his, was that his older brother who was on guitar?
0: That was his older brother on guitar, and the band was his. And he taught Tommy to play the bass.
1: To keep him out of trouble, basically.
0: <laughs> because Bob had just come home from Juvie. And he thought he could see it. You know, they had this terrible like stepfather or whatever. His home life was awful. Um, and he could see where this might head. So he said, Tommy, you know, you're gonna play the bass. Tommy's like thirteen when they're when they put out that first record. So
1: Bob's the guy who liked to wear dresses and like hang out in trash cans and cover himself in duct yeah. tape and all that kind of stuff. He's the one that won't get off the pinball
0: machine when the show starts that was a great anecdote
1: he misses oh, like the first few songs uh, and then when he tries to get on stage uh, i guess he's getting like he like westerberg's like kicking him or pushing him and won't, won't let, let him won't, on <laughs> he's kicking him off the stage oh um, well let, let's it, start let's start big picture first what to you is the minneapolis punk scene because it seems like the minneapolis punk scene had its own thing going on and its own bands and its own personalities as well as like up and coming actors and like of all the most like unlikely places imaginable somehow Like the replacement seemed to be like right at the heart and center of this local scene going on at that time.
0: Yeah, well, they, you know, um, by the late 70s, you know, everybody has at least found some uh, talk of punk rock. No matter where you are, it's it's showing up in in places as lame as like Rolling Stone. You might still get like a, a mention of it. So by the late 70s, every little place has something going on. Um, people realize that they all they have to do is find a guitar and then they can do what they want to do. Um, Minneapolis, Saint Paul, had uh, quite a few bands that that took advantage of that. And Husker Du is Minneapolis to me. I love Husker Du, or at least up until a point, I love Husker Du. Um, but the replacements were the other band in that town, um, and they they had the right connections in that scene and obviously not connections to the wider you know music industry but peter jesperson twin tone records love the replacements and as soon as they played a couple of shows they played what turns out to be the probably the drunkest band of all times plays an alcohol free show at some hall some <laughs> kid and they get kicked out for being shit
1: faced probably yeah they were Um, Well, it uh, seems like that's part of the charm of the replacements that people talk about over and over again, is that every time you saw a show, there's a very good chance that it either could not happen or completely fall apart or the band might start fighting or it might be the most sublime, transportive, just incredible show you've ever had the privilege of listening to. And so that unpredictable, <laughs> those, those variables, those X factors, you never quite knew what kind of show you're going to get. And it seems to be part of the experience because it wasn't like you guys see the Rolling Stones and I saw the Rolling Stones once in 94 and once in 97 and it was like popping in hot rocks, their greatest hits. And like you knew exactly what kind of manufactured product you were going to hear yeah. at that time. But with the replacements, it seems like you were venturing into the unknown when, to, when you went to one of their shows.
0: Well, that seems to have been the case. Um, I never got to see the replacements, and it's one of the saddest stories of my childhood. We moved away when I was uh, 13, 14 uh, from Tallahassee. My family's from South Georgia. I grew up in Tallahassee. Vinyl fever is where all this began for me. But I would come back in the summertime, and I came back as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, And the replacements were playing at the musical Moon, which was a club in Tallahassee, might still be there. I thought, well, I want to go. We both wanted to go. Me and my buddy both wanted to go. And his mother said it was fine, but that I had to call my parents, who were thousands of miles or hundreds of miles away, and ask their permission. And they said no. And I listened to them. (laughs) I should have said, you know, I don't care. They said it was fine.
1: We're going. Yeah, you should have flipped the double bird, gone full just punk.
0: Right. Flipped the double bird or just gone, but it's one of the saddest non-punk rock moments in my life. <laughs> and I still regret it to this day, because I think Bob Stinson was still with him. I'm not sure exactly when it was in, you know, 86, 87, somewhere in there.
1: He got thrown um, out, what, like 89 or 90 or something like that when, for being just did, t- too much of a fuck-up? Well, they
0: made Tim... And he, Tommy Ramone, talks about that. You know, he, they brought him in to produce the record, and he talks about how they had him for one day. Um, and they would get him. But the thing is, man, he's the one that kept the band not becoming Brian Adams or Bruce Springsteen or whatever it is that, that that Westerberg has in his mind, and he's this great American songwriter. You know, honestly, if you take a song like unsatisfied that everybody loves it sounds like brian adams if you gave that a slick production there's no difference between that and any other like, those, those,
1: those are their musical influence their musical influences were really mainstream kind of poppy tunes
0: well they all had different influences like bob seemed to love like the stooges and stuff like that but he also loved yes you know and tommy loved pop music he didn't care and paul westerberg again thinks he's the great American songwriter. So these albums become more and more sort of comfortable, predictable. Um, you know, and by the time they make "Please to Meet Me," they go to Arden Studios in Memphis with Jim Dickinson. Got a lot of stacks. Like but it seems like
1: there are people who defend the later ones and like almost like guilty pleasures and love a lot of the songs, but it seems like this first couple of records before they had that slick studio polish, that was kind of the essence of what they were all about. But what I loved about this documentary, it has almost like a novelistic approach where you have these great title cards that really yeah. fill in the gaps on the history and the the major events of their, their story as a band. And then it'll be backed up by testimonials and the testimonials come sometimes come from these really unlikely places. Like there's a great story by a guy who was a bus driver when he was 18 years old. Yeah. And if the, if the kids were good on the bus, he'd play this song, uh, Fuck School, on Friday yeah. afternoon on the way home. And all the kids were like, yeah! And so, but, you know, this is not yeah. like Sting sitting down and saying, oh, well, the Replacements were like the be- best unheralded band yeah. of the 80s. These are just unassuming everyday people who just happen to really love the Replacements.
0: People love the replacements. Obviously, from the, the, the documentary, you can see that. That's one of the interesting things I think about the selections is you get the scene, you get a band, and then you get the fans. And people are obsessed. I mean, that's color me obsessed. I mean, they're they love the replacements. I I don't love them in that way. They're very important as a landmark and as a sort of like um, a representation of what was going on in the '80s. But I do love those first two records and Blake, my son. He will lose his mind. If you put on kids don't fall I don't know if you've heard if you heard that or not, but it's got this clip from a party. They talk about it in the documentary. It's like this is the Minneapolis Police Department. The party's over. <laughs> <laughs> they had a party and they were uh, they were recording, and so you hear actual cops. You know, like the party's over, grab your stuff and get out.
1: Well, one of my favorite anecdotes in the documentary was there was a guy recording a bootleg during one of the shows, and they came out and they (laughs) stopped him from doing it, but when they listened to it later on that night, they loved it. And it was mostly cover songs. On the but it became like one of the most famous, beloved, copied bootlegs of their entire career, and it was just a random concert. You know, no mics, no proper setup of what it was just a guy like holding up a boombox in the air and recording, and yet it somehow just completely, totally took off.
0: Yeah, and they were famous for that for the covers um, that they would play. And uh, what, what was the song? They mentioned it in the documentary. But sometimes when they would screw up a song. They would go into this classic rock song, play for a couple bars, and then go back into the next song so they could get their footing or whatever. Um, you know, and they're f- probably their most famous album, Let It Be.
1: Which, Why would you call an album Let It Be, like f- <laughs> 15 years after the Beatles have an album called Let It Be? <laughs>
0: because they had, there was somebody,
1: an engineer, somebody
0: who was obsessed with the Beatles. Okay, And... Uh, He's like, well, we're going to call it Let It Be. That's one of the stories. The other story is it was the next song that comes on the radio. We're going to do it. Okay. And, of course, the people older who were around were like, you can't do that. You can't do that. They were well, like – Well, Let It Be wasn't that old of an I, album.
1: Like now Let It Be might as well come from the Stone Age. But in 1983 or 4 or whatever, Let It Be was not necessarily not ancient history. It was 1970. Well, it wasn't ancient
0: history because people wouldn't stop talking about it. And, and this comes up in the documentary. and I'm, it, It's funny to me that it comes up with the replacements who – are obviously carrying on a similar tradition, but where people are like, the baby boomers just won't shut up. You know, they won't stop. They won't stop telling you that nothing you've seen is better than the Beatles or Woodstock. Um, and they're like, screw you, we got the replacements. You know, it It was really, there was a lot of that.
1: Yeah, every generation needs its own sound, and that's one of the, like the criti- critical o- oversights of my childhood was like, obsessing too much about a period that I was never going to get to experience firsthand. I remember being like in fifth or sixth grade. I was playing in the school band and people were always talking about Woodstock and they're talking about all these old bands. And we kind of deprived ourselves of having our own generational musical experience. And in the 80s, you still had, obviously, you know, these huge, giant, you know... Groups that really define that period before. I, I have no idea why the 80s did not speak to me in the 80s because now when I watch movies from the 80s and I hear 80s music, it has a completely different impact on me. Even something like just watching the opening title scene, title credits for, or the opening title cards for A View to a Kill and hearing Duran Duran. It's like, I didn't appreciate how much fun that was when I saw it in the theater at age eight or nine and whenever the hell it was. And I, I don't know why the 80s, but there was nothing. I think the one exception might have been like Appetite for Destruction when that came out. I don't think there was a kid alive who didn't have that album and didn't listen to it on a loop. But I just missed so many of these giant watershed moments in the 80s by just being obsessed with a completely different era.
0: Well, part of the problem, though, is when we look back, like the replacements get back together in the 2000s and they sell out all these places. And so when you look back on a record like Double Nickels on a Dime or like Damaged by Black Flag, they seem like these monumental achievements. But at the time, nobody – that's one of the things about the Replacements documentary where they show you what the number one selling record was for that year during the title cards. It's like, you know, Hootnanny sold – 10,000 copies or whatever it was. Yeah,
1: yeah 10,000, 20,000. Yeah. And then they'll show something by some major group that sold like 10 million and something. 10
0: million copies.
1: And so you really kind of had to be. And for me, it was just luck. I mean, but they just get up to the, like, the low couple hundred thousand. Like if you're selling two or 300,000 records, that's yep. obviously you're not going to, you're not, no one's going to look back at you as like Michael Jackson. But you are having an impact at that point if you can convince a couple hundred thousand people to throw 10 bucks your way. Well, I know that by
0: 1990, when uh, Don't Tell a Soul... Came out that they had a song on MTV like regularly, like you could see it in the afternoon.
1: I mean, they played, uh, they performed in SNL. What, nineteen eighty six? Yeah, nineteen eighty six. Bastards of the Young. I, I did watch it, and they like oh. they were famous because they sent an ice bucket full of human feces down to the uh, to the lobby through like a like a dumb or something like that. And yeah, Tom Arnold was apparently like, telling a story about how a couple years later yep. he was hanging out with all these kind of hardcore gangster rap figures, and he was telling them all these stories about just all the weird shit that white people do <laughs> like, like you know like gangster rap they might shoot you but they're not gonna send like a bucket of shit down to the lobby but that, that was kind of how the replacements rolled
0: well they had spent all day in there waiting to play and they'd gotten drunk and drunker they'd spread like brownies all over the wall they tried to flush down sandwiches down the toilet they'd go out to play and at some point in the song I still can't hear it I don't know if it's edited or what but that clip from Saturday Night Live, you can't hear it, but he says, come on, fucker. Oh, well, interesting. And they, they're banned forever. You know, the, the, the replacements and fear both were banned from Saturday Night Live uh, permanently.
1: Well, I like hearing Dave Foley, who obviously was huge in the nineties with the kids in the hall. And I mean, he's done 10 yeah. great TV shows and movies, but people always think, Oh, the kids in the hall, you're all going to be kind of like the Beatles of comedy. He's like, no, we want to be the replacements of comedy. <laughs> and most people had no idea who he was talking about, but Dave Foley was a fanatic for the replacements.
0: Yeah, he's great. Um, actually the uh, kids in the hall movie pavement is on the soundtrack. I think Yola Tango's is on there. They were really good with that stuff. They, they obviously he was a fan of music. Um, but George went. I mean, that <laughs> from Cheers <laughs> shows up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, he's part of that <laughs> Minneapolis scene.
0: <laughs> well, but the the thing about the replacements is that they became more and more refined in what they were doing, and maybe that was their intention all along. So I don't I don't fault them for that. I well, mean, it's they not. They said that uh,
1: Tim, which was the final Minneapolis album, they started sounding like a real band, and to some fans, they started becoming less interesting. And but obviously pleased to meet me has a bunch of fans and like i mean oh yeah so it seems like while they did quote unquote sell out and for me as a kid whenever i'd hear about a band selling out it just meant Not necessarily becoming more successful, but just meant you were being untrue to your roots or untrue to where you came from. And so if you heard about an actor or a band or whatever selling out, it just meant you were chasing the money at the expense of your own artistic integrity, which I think is the more fair way of putting it. And so I think that people had a justifiable complaint that they were, quote unquote, selling out. But if their goal all along was to be that band, maybe they weren't selling out. Well, and that's the problem
0: with the replacements. And that's why, while a lot of it's charming, a lot of it's disturbing, too. And it, it's kind of sad. They, would, they self-sabotaged all the time. It's almost like a leave in Las Vegas kind of thing, not, not a bachelor party kind of thing. I mean, they, they were drunks, man. I mean, and a lot of times, like, they, they open for Tom Petty, which tells you really what you need to know towards the end there.
1: Well, I love when they talk about how Bob Stinson was too fucked up even for the replacements, and if you're too fucked up to be in the replacements, you're seriously getting after it on a daily basis, and how he didn't OD, he just died because he was so fucking unhealthy from taking drugs and drinking all the time.
0: But if you read Our Band Could Be Your Life by Azerod, there's a moment where Bob tries to get cleaned up, and when he comes back, Paul tells him you're either going to drink this champagne or you're out. And there's a lot of like that documentary obviously is fans and there are people who have kind of a Even Somebody talks about it. Like there's a halo around.
1: It's kind of the custodians of the reputation of a band that they love. That they loved. But there was a lot of
0: destructive, not, not in a sort of artistic sense, which is always welcome to me, but in a really like an actual sense, like in the personal sense, there was a lot of self-destruction involved there. Um, but, you know, I read an article where they, they watched Tom Petty and what it took to, like, put out those shows every night, and there was just no way. Like, they, they just didn't have that.
1: Well, it's a level of professionalism, but I think, I can't remember who said it, but they said that in terms of their conduct, they were unambitious and unprofessional, but that when it came to their musicianship and their craft, they, their ambition was soaring. So it's a weird contrast where they want to create great music, but they just can't quite get their shit together.
0: And they can't do the things that are required. Look, I don't, these record labels, these big record labels, they need to make money. It's not like, um, it's not like you don't know what you're getting into. Um, And it's not an indictment against them. I mean, they have, they have to make a profit. And so there are certain things that, that come along with that. And when you, if you're doing, if you really are doing your own thing, you're doing whatever you want, when you want, for as much as you can get away with, you can't operate that way. Husker Du ends up signing to a major label. They were like the first band that signed to a major label from the whole scene. And they can't even book their own shows anymore. And this, you know, it's things like that that became like real uh, friction in bands, in the output, in the music. And again, this is why people hated it when these bands would sign to major labels. Not because, not because necessarily of the ideology of it, but because there were going to have to be compromises. They just, you can't, Sell records at that level and not make some compromises.
1: Um, Who in have- your mind is a band that you loved where you saw their artistic integrity get totally, utterly cut off at the knees by kind of going mainstream? Because I mean, it's one of those things where I, I can remember as a high school kid and I was a junior when this new band in Charlottesville, Virginia was like their bootlegs were everywhere. And of course, event, a couple years later, they were one of the most famous bands in the world, the Dave Matthews Band. But when I was seventeen, they were a local band playing at Tracks, and Tracks was like the one quote unquote nightclub, and it's Charlottesville's version of a nightclub, which means it's not a nightclub in any way, shape, or form. But they were the cool local band; we loved them. And then, like two years later, three years later, when they're playing like Crash and stuff, I was like, ugh. These guys are so cheesy. They're so mainstream, and I started just fucking hating them with I felt like we had lost them as our as our as our local band. But can, well, who for you is someone that where you've had like kind of immediately abruptly fallen out of love as they get embraced by pop culture overall? Well,
0: um, it might be the replacements because I do think they changed. Um, also, REM. Although I can't go back and listen to the old records from REM, um, but they definitely had a change. Um, I don't think they were all that different to begin with. They seem to be out to conquer the world from the beginning. But um, I, I kind of, probably the replacements though, because when Bob's kicked out of the band, I mean, there's no point anymore. I'm with the person in the documentary that says, this isn't it. You, gotta fi-. you, you can't have the replacements without Bob Stenson because you still get songs like Tommy Gets His Tonsils Out, Gary's Got a Boner. Um, no matter what they're doing, there's still these rockers in there that. And without him, and then the, they put horns on the music and they sort of get these producers for hire. And it's just, I forget it. I don't, it, it's just not for me.
1: Well, it seems like their influence is still being felt many years later, Mike Like, I think it was Wilco that said, Everything we do is based on the replacements. And that's, that's pretty high praise.
0: It is. And they, you know, country rock, this idea of country rock, Hoot Hootenanny's a great record. And there's my favorite song on that record.
1: All right, so what's the do with the first song? Because they, they were playing at some club and they put in Hoot Nanny, and they said the first song almost became like this like cosmic joke, and the crowd really turned against the DJ, and like the DJ was like, "I got to take this fucking song out."
0: Put it on. They're all playing the different instruments and singing. You go find it, and you'll find you listen to the kids don't follow it. They put Hoot Nanny on, and you definitely understand why the crowd would be like, "Man, you got to be kidding me!" But the best one on there is Treatment Bound. Um where he actually, in the middle of the song, like uh, comments on how he screwed the other band members up by changing key or whatever. Um, and you're not going to get that stuff when you're on a major label. That's it has gone. Gotcha. So That's
1: that, the playfulness is gone, the mischievous side. Oh, oh, yeah. Which
0: is... I mean, if you're just going to play rock and roll, man, there are hundreds of thousands of people that play rock and roll every day. If you're just going to be a bar band... You might be a great bar band, but there are lots of great bar bands. I mean, listen to Summer of 69 if you want to. I mean, it's basically what you're doing. So, Well,
1: as we start start winding down toward the end of this episode, what I want to do is for people out there like me who have zero knowledge of punk of any kind, I want you to give us five punk band recommendations and not their best album, but the best album to start with. So that the uninitiated, the unconverted can get a little sampler that would kind of potentially invite people into understanding what drew you to this music with so much passion and intensity as a youngin. You want five of them? I want five. I want five introductory kick-ass albums that Eric Bartlum signs off on as just being the shit. You have to have
0: damaged by black flag. You don't, You don't need another hardcore record, okay? You have to have double nickels on a dime. Although if you can find Buzzer Howl, I might suggest that one as well, but you have to have double nickels on a dime. Uh, I'm going to say Zen Arcade by Husker Du, but you can't go wrong with New Day Rising either. Um, Let's see. Group Sex by Circle Jerks. And then fresh fruit for rotting flies by Dead Kennedys. I mean,
1: now I mean, are there yeah. any fans out there who are going to claim that you're opposed making those choices? But like, man, like, what, what would Eugene think of those choices? Do you think
0: I think Eugene would be okay with them? But after 30, 40 years, who knows? <laughs> you know, um, but those are the records that I would I would suggest. You know, this this all all started with trying to find Duran Duran records and then being introduced to REM, and then going from there. And on the same trips, you know, where I would go back, a buddy had been given a box from his uncle of tapes. And in that tape was Seven-Inch Wonders of the World. And if you really want to know, that's the record. If you can find a copy of Seven-Inch Wonders of the World, it's all the seven inches that SST had put out to that point. It's Black Flag, Minutemen, Husker Du, Sacker & Trust, um the meat puppets when i heard that everything else, that's that's when i parted ways with r.e.m. and college rock you know um and that's when my friends started to say i was listening to ugly music and and that's 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 when i really took a turn away and uh if you can find that you'll know all you need to know uh, about what I think about punk rock. But yeah, there's probably somebody out there. I mean, I didn't mention minor threats or bad brains or a lot of other great bands.
1: Well, I'm in no position to call you out on being a poser. So I'll just assume you're talking about just the quintessential essence of the punk movement.
0: They can say whatever they want, but I'll tell you what, man, I used to know some skateboarders like that were regionally, um, you know, recognized or whatever those are the most vicious people as far as like authenticity that I've ever been around.
1: Well, the best thing about <laughs> being a skate rat and figuring out whether or not someone's a poser, all you have to do is watch them for 30 seconds right. and if yep. they can skate, they can stay skate. And if they can't, you say, all right, you suck. <laughs> and you move on. So, <laughs> it's like being a, like an MMA practitioner. If you claim you're a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and you get in there, and start rolling with somebody and they submit you in seconds, like guess what? You're, yeah. you're talking yeah. shit. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: But it was really, um, it was not hard in the South, because, you know, the
0: fashion never took on, the politics never took on, and people were really sort of, they just loved music, so, you know, you could buy a Cure record and a Black Flag record, and nobody was going to give you uh, a hassle about it. And and there was certainly, and that's the other thing, this is only one strain of what was going on in the 80s. Um, In the UK, I mean, you have Post Punk and The Fall and Echo and the Man, which are two of my, I mean, two of my favorite bands, I mean, I I adore those bands. In New Zealand, Flying Nun Records with the clean and the chills and all that, you have great things going on in the 80s there. Um, Bands like Chrome that are just on their own planet. And then, of course, rap. I mean, by the end of the 80s, you've got some monumental artistic achievements. Eric B. and Rakim, you know, Paid in Full, Nation of Millions, um, Ultramagnetic MCs, Critical Beatdown. There was so much good music in the '80s. I mean, you could just do this forever, um, and even the new wave stuff, man.
1: I mean, ABC, Duran Duran. I mean, what do you got now? I, I, I don't know. I mean, hey, I, mean I think in, in your 40s, you're not supposed to know what's going on now. If you do, if I, if I bump into somebody our age, who is totally up to speed on contemporary pop music. I look at them like they're pathetic. Like if you're 16, fine. But if you're 42 yeah. and you're still yeah. like listening to pop music with total sincerity, I'm going to laugh in your face. I guess somebody, somebody could flip that around and say, Yeah, but you go see superhero movies. And I would probably have to say, Touche. So right. I guess it all depends on what you're into. <laughs>
0: well, uh, you know, I do have a 10 year old. So I get some of this. Um, there's a song about horses right now, Country in the Back or whatever, a lot of post Malone, Taylor Swift. Tai Tai. Uh, yeah, whatever. And, but he also loves the stuff. And my nephew, who I didn't, I try not to harass these kids because I was harassed so much about the 60s, man.
1: Like he was just constant, like, you know, oh yeah, okay. Well, every generation how- thinks they're, the music that when they were young is the best music ever. Any band from a certain period or any person from like a, if, if if like my grandfather he was young in the late 30s early 40s so i'm sure he thought artie shaw and benny goodman and all these guys were the greatest musicians of all time and that probably never changed to his dying day and from my dad it was all about Fucking BB King and Otis Redding and all these guys. Like, it just every generation has their own thing. So it's why I occasionally find myself in a weird way, find like kind of like when I discovered um, London Calling by the Clash, it was like 20 years after it came out. Yeah. And I spent like weeks just listening to it on a loop, just yeah. totally obsessed with it because I just missed it when it first came out.
0: Yeah. And so I try, I try not to, I, I really don't hassle. But my nephew came to the stuff on his own. He loves the stuff. He loves payment. He loves it punk rock bands he comes over and he raids my records um and i'm happy to let him take them you know um and of course we we probably shouldn't talk about this without talking about what it led to um these bands are representative there were others but this is why i mean if anybody out there remembers nirvana you know this is how that came about um and our band can be your life by Azerod really makes this point by opening up with nirvana like Nirvana was, was they it? Were,
1: Nevermind, a song by the Replacements, which is like and it shows, tells you all you need to know that Nirvana would name their album Nevermind after yeah. a Replacements tune.
0: But you hear Dinosaur Jr. and Husker Du, um, the Pixies. There's just no way around it. But but it was very like that that album was calculated to take advantage of what had been growing. Husker Du, the Replacements, REM, eventually Sonic Youth uh, signed a major labels. And they know, I mean, these people are paying attention. There are people, even in the documentary, they talk about how they were celebrating at Warner Brothers when they got the replacements. They're like, we've got the next thing. Well, it took a little while. But they finally put it together. You put Nirvana together with a producer that understands how to turn the drums up, add a little reverb, and the next thing you know, you've got, you know, platinum records.
1: Yeah, Um, I was a freshman in high school, and Nevermind came out, and it just... Took over. It, it, I mean, it was, it, was, it, 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 it was, there was no escaping that album there for like a year or two. But it was a pretty goddamn good album, I must admit. You know, come as I you mean, are and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah I have a sort of love hate with them. I mean, it's a uh, I, I, the one thing I really appreciated about them was that they were very generous with their, with the spotlight and they'd bring in the meat puppets or they'd cover the Vaseline's, the raincoats. They got pavement on the reading in 92, which was uh, a big deal. Um, and so I don't hate Nirvana I don't dislike Nirvana in fact right now my son has found it somehow and he is just it, I'm having to play Nirvana in the car there's not we, that
1: much to listen to I mean think about Kurt Cobain but he popped in 91 and he was like what dead by 95 I mean they were they were here for just a hot second
0: they were um, they had an album before called Bleach which was uh, which is a pretty good album it's fun um, Negative Creep is a great song
1: it's incredible though, how when that album came out how the, the sound of the late eighties, like that that Guns N' Roses sound that was so dominant, just was gone. Never, never
0: disappeared. It, it, it just shoved weird. it right out. There's a funny I can't remember which documentary it was, but it was a dude from Winger or Oh, Skid Row. From Skid Row, he's like, yes, yes, I, I, I wore a flannel shirt. <laughs>
1: like they just Dude, I wore flannel to, shirts for years. That- Early 90s, flannel shirts over a t-shirt was my go-to look. And if you're a skinny, scrawny, malnourished, unathletic kid, it's a great go-to. It makes you look yeah. a little healthier than you actually are.
0: Yeah, I think Kirk Cobain, from what I understand, like piled on layers just to make himself look a little bit bigger. Yeah, and he's actually-
1: a gaunt yeah just gone well, of course well,
0: it's a big, I think okay. we're
1: starting to drift off topic, so I'm going to go ahead and start wrapping this sucker up but can't thank you enough for coming on here and helping me address some of my areas of ignorance on this topic because <laughs> if there are a couple of good flicks out there I'll tackle any topic as long as I can approach it in a cinematic context that is that is my doorway so I feel slightly less stupid on this subject than I was before I started watching these films so thanks so much for making these recommendations thanks so much for making this pitch but where can people find you online if they want to call you a poser Man,
0: I could bring it on.
1: Uh, E underscore F underscore Bartlem, isn't that right? You
0: always put the underscore on there whenever I just say EF yeah, Bartlem. So I think that's
1: you definitely need the underscores if
0: man. you got it. underscores. Uh, I'm on there, and if you want to call me, that's fine. I mean, I'm not, I've never been striding about much. Well, after so. you're done
1: talking trash with Eric about uh, about punk, you can start talking trash with him about, about basketball. He's got some pent up anger. Oh. On that
0: <laughs> It was so funny, man. Like um, because you have talked about pavement, I've mentioned it many times. They went to UVA, man.
1: I did. Steve I, did I did not know that. Wahoo wah, uh, go Cavaliers! Uh, yeah,
0: news, man. And uh, but Jenny had, Miss Jenny had picked Auburn to win she was talking so much trash that night. Of course, I just, but I really don't even care about basketball. Even my
1: doorman in my building was talking shit about it. He's like, man, like, uh, cause I I mentioned like, are you going to watch the finals? And then he started talking about the Auburn game with UVA. And then I I admitted that I'd gone to Virginia, but it's one of those things where, of course, if you, if the team you want gets, you know, gets screwed by a bad call, you're going to carry that like money till the end of time. But uh, yeah, I'm not, I I have no dog in this fight. I don't follow basketball. My whole family, for me, I just wish Carolina would win every, Year because it makes my family happy uh, but my dad he's been rooting for I mean he used to take me to see Ralph Sampson play in Charlottesville in the early oh. 80s and so he's been waiting waiting for this victory basically his whole life
0: well that's great man. there is one thing I wanted to mention um, one of the producers one of the people who directed and produced We Jam is named Keith Sharon uh, he was a friend he went to college with somebody who also does a podcast Mike Hodges from uh Three songs pod, and he knew him from college and he died a few years after the after the documentary was made. And it just wanted to say it's Mike Hogan, not Mike Hodges, but that he he was one of the nicest people ever. And it just sort of adds to the tragedy of the documentary itself, you know, that the fellow that made it also passed away at an untimely untimely death. So but um I appreciate you having me on to talk about this. I mean, I feel like it's a little self-indulgent. You know, it's yeah, not... But
1: re- it. I, I love my favorite episodes of the episodes that forced me to go out of my comfort zone and learn something new. And this was... I mean, that, this absolutely qualifies. I was a blank slate, and now I'm slightly less so.
0: Well, I hope so, man. And I tell you, I can... I, um, I, I know that some of the... Uh, a lot of the music was live in all of these documentaries except for the replacement song where there's no music. Um, but if you want to hear what those records sounded like, I can help you out anytime. All right. Very cool. In fact, I post them all the time on my timeline.
1: Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take a gander. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed listening to this episode. Definitely hunt down some of those albums and definitely hunt down those movies I and mean, start with decline of Western civilization. If you haven't seen it, it rocks. It's a really good documentary. It's a really well-made film without a doubt, but uh, please consider leaving us a rating and review. I am not afraid to sell out. I'm uh, I'm all about selling out here on Wrong Reel. And so I want all the support that I can get. But if you want to talk more, you can always find me at, on Twitter at Colbrax. And if you want some video content, you can hunt me down on Geeking with James Hancock on YouTube. We just posted a giant live stream the other day with uh, Adam Ratkoff and Bill Scurry. But in the chat we had a hundred million wrong real contributors which was a ton of fun and so if you watch it on youtube you can see all these people like cribs and fred schafer etc all chatting up a mile a minute and so that that was a ton of fun seeing so many familiar faces turn out so thanks again for listening but as always onwards and upwards it ain't
2: like it used to be but uh it'll do you know how to whistle don't you steve
1: you just
2: put your lips together and blow